Hi, I'm Rob. You're listening to Two Bye Guys. But first, are you looking to promote your brand to a target audience? Then Zencaster's Creator Network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favorite creators like me. Podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising, with 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them. So whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream, or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's Creator Network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster matches you with the best podcasts, like this one, so your product gets to the right audience and can maximize your advertising campaign budget. So start podcast performance marketing with Zencaster's Podcast Marketplace. They've made it easy to track conversions by integrating with major payment platforms such as Shopify and Stripe, and they've already proven that with the right fit, Smaller podcasts can outperform bigger ones in a variety of verticals, allowing them to work with all podcasters. And I can attest to that. I've been part of the Zencaster Creator Network for a few months this whole season, and they've been great connecting me with brands, helping me with the ads, making sure that the brands will match our audience so that people are actually interested in what we're talking about and so that I can keep creating. Interested in sponsoring this show or podcast ads for your business? Go to zen.ai slash two by guys zero. That's zen.ai slash T-W-O-B-I-G-U-I-S, the number zero, and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Two Bye Guys. I'm here today with a special guest, a friend of mine who is running for office. I'm here with Lydia Green. Lydia is a 25-year-old bi-Jewish woman, organizer, Democratic Party reform activist, and lifelong fourth-generation Brooklynite. She is running for district leader of New York City Assembly District 52, which we'll ask her about. And we are old friends from By Request. We met at the By Discussion Group in New York City. So it's nice to see you again after a couple years of being away from By Request. But welcome to Two By Guys, Lydia. Yeah, thanks, Rob. It's it's weird being on this because I'm I'm also a longtime listener. <laughs> cool. We love it. We love to just bring everyone into the fold. Eventually we'll get to everyone. <laughs> Run for <laughs> run for office, and that's how you get on the podcast quickly. <laughs> so we'll talk about the office stuff and the politics, which we love talking about on this podcast. But first, let's talk about you and your story and your bi identity. So I think I just went over this, but t- tell us in your words, what pronouns do you use and how do you identify on whatever spectrums you would like to identify on? Yeah, um, I think you you did go over a lot of it, um, but I use she, her pronouns. I, I'm a woman, I'm bisexual, I'm Jewish, and um, I've also lately been, been sort of toying with using the term disabled to describe myself. And actually, the episode that you, you had of your podcast last week was like one of the things that made me think of that, because mm-hmm. your, your guest mentioned about how disability is something that, that people feel like you have to be a certain amount disabled um, in order to qualify similarly to being bisexual. And I, I also like saw something on Twitter that that was similar. And those thing together, things together have made me feel like, oh, well, yeah, I do have mental illnesses. And like, I have experiences that that like could qualify as 
disabled. Um, so I don't know. That was that was long, cool. but <laughs> no, interesting. Yeah, no. I, I mean, it was really interesting what Ruby talked about last week about how. I mean, it's two different things, but how similar sort of that experience can be in terms of like recognizing it coming out like integrating it with your identity shedding shame and stuff okay so we'll get into that uh i'm so i'm curious like i don't i i don't even remember when we met and by request but you're you're pretty young so like when did you sort of start to realize you were bi and what was that development like and then we'll talk about how it intersects with those other things yeah so i i am pretty young but i feel like i i was relatively well, not old, but <laughs> on the older side from when I realized that I was bi, um, I was in college already. And I, so I grew up in Brooklyn, but I didn't even really hear that bisexual was an option as, as many, as the case for many bi people um, until I was in my teens. And then I, it took me a few years to realize that that was something that could apply to me. I, so it was right around like 2017 when I first started questioning. And what what really sparked that questioning was that I I actually found out about the word omnisexual, hmm. which I, I don't necessarily identify as omnisexual, um, but previously I had just heard of bisexual and pansexual. And I thought that it was like if you were attracted to multiple genders, there was like one specific way that you could do that. And that was being gender blind and feeling like gender doesn't matter. And the way that I had felt attraction was always very different depending on the person's gender. Hmm. And and so I was always assuming that my attraction to men was real and my attraction to women and non-binary people was not attraction and was something else. Interesting. And and so hearing hearing about the term omnisexual just kind of blew my mind and made me realize, oh wow, like I it could be possible that all of these are attraction and and that I I could be attracted to multiple genders um, and that that I am allowed to identify as bi. How do you define omnisexual? It's been so a while since I've used that word. Yeah. So it's it's often used in contrast to pansexual. Um, and so it's attraction to all genders. But while pansexual is regardless of gender, omnisexual is like, like I want to say almost like because of gender. Like um, you're not gender blind. You see differences between genders and maybe you feel different ways about different genders, but you like them all. Yeah. Interesting. I do hear, you know, people have different experiences with that. And like, it seems like, especially among, I'll say your generation, we're like, we're like half in the same generation, but you're, you're a little more connected to the young people. That's, that's another thing that I, that I have on a spectrum is like my generation, I'm like right in between generations. You call yourself on Twitter a zillennial. Is that what it says? What does that mean? (laughs) Zoomer yeah. slash or Gen Z slash millennial in between. Yeah, exactly. Because um, so I was born in 1996, which is some some people define that as being millennial and some people define it as being Gen Z. And and I have similarities to both generations. I have friends in different generations. So I'm like right in the middle. <laughs> well, you better pick one side. Otherwise, people will be confused about you forever. <laughs> no, I like that. OK, but so I was going to ask, like, I think we don't have to get too deep into this, but since it came up, this whole, the labels thing and bi, pan, omni, like it seems to be a a bigger debate, like among young people who like to use the word pan, but like there are a lot of people like 
you who are not attractive regardless of gender, but can experience attraction. The potential is there, but it might feel different. So I, I guess my question is like, what do you see in among young people in terms of that stuff? And like, how, how do you experience that omnisexuality? Yeah, well, I think that a lot of a lot of young people do tend to use pan or queer or or something else. But there there are still a lot of people who who use bi. So like I personally felt like I didn't necessarily identify with pan, as I mentioned, because I didn't feel gender blind about my attraction. And I also um I, I think when I first started questioning my sexuality, I I was I was like, well, I don't know if I'm actually attracted to all genders. <laughs> um I know that I'm I'm attracted to more than one gender, but I don't know if it's all genders, and so I'm not ready to to make that that decision. And also, I just really like the bi flag and the history associated with bisexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and and like like I think Brenda Howard is really cool, and um and all of all of the organizers who who've been like working towards bi rights for the last like 40, 50 years. Cool. Well, we'll get into it more later because there's always this issue of like uniting together in solidarity and when when are the things that make us unique important to talk about and when are the things that bring us together important to talk about and we will talk about that in terms of the democratic party in a few minutes but getting back to okay so you kind of realized it in college which is late everyone thinks they came out late it's funny no matter what (laughs) how young they're um i think i came out late i was 30 but like you know someone else came at by request came out in fifties and sixties. Anyway, what happened next? How, when did you actually start coming out? How did you kind of integrate that identity into your life? Yeah. So I started talking to my sister about it. She was the first person I I sort of told that I was questioning. And then it also sort of sparked her questioning her identity also, which was really cool. Cool. Um, And so then we took this sort of queer questioning journey, journey together for a while. Um, and, and so this was over the summer and then I went back to college uh, in the fall and I decided to go check out the like LGBT club on campus, which at my school is called Allies. And uh, I was I was thinking I would go there and just sort of like be a straight cis person. But then on the first day, they had us go around in the circle and they were like, what type of queer are you? <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, well, I guess. I, I, I have to <laughs> spill, spill the beans. <laughs> um, and, and so like, I, I mentioned that I was sort of like questioning and, and maybe a little bit attracted to, to women and, and they, they were really kind. They were, they were basically like, well, any amount of queer, you're welcome. There, there is no gatekeeping here. And, and so I really appreciated that. And that made me, that made me feel more welcome to explore my, my sexuality. And I, um, I sort of kept coming back to this club for a while and also like talking to my sister. And uh, I, at some point I felt like, okay, I've, I've like thought about this enough. I, I think I, I even like, there was a point where I was like, okay, I'm bi and I like identifying that way, but I don't know if I qualify, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I, I think is probably common for a lot of, a lot of bi plus people. Mm-hmm. And oh yeah. And, and I, like, I had some experiences where I was like, I, I would kiss a woman and then I'd be like, oh, well, like, I don't know if I really liked that, but it wasn't like, I don't like this person or was it, I don't like this gender. Right. <laughs> um, yep. I think that I, when I started coming out, I was like, not quite ready 
and like in terms of to my to my parents to my friends mm-hmm. I think I was sort of feeling like I well with my parents it actually happened that because I had also been talking about this with my sister um we sort of planned that we were going to come out together and <laughs> I think she was a little bit more ready to come out. And I don't know, it was nice to sort of have someone else to come out with at the same time. But on the other hand, I think that I I maybe should have waited a little while until I was a little bit more secure in my identity, which like, I feel, I feel a little bit security, a little bit more secure now than I did then. Uh-huh. But at the time it was, it was like, I felt like I, I had to like come out and also defend both for myself and to other people that this was a real sexuality and that it actually applied to me. Yeah. And I, I told, I totally identify with that part. Uh, it's like, I, I almost feel like a lot of the first handful of people I came out to, especially my parents, I was doing more explaining what bisexuality is and saying that I believe in it rather than saying this, I'm that like just proving that it was real. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I think, I mean, I don't, I don't fault my parents necessarily. I think they also didn't know about bisexuality until the, around the same time that I learned about it. <laughs> and, right. and like, if they had known about it, they would have taught me about it. Yeah. But yeah, instead I had to teach them about it, yep. which was a, an interesting role reversal. And did your sister come out as bi also? She, so she came out as bi also. I think she's now she sort of like doesn't really like to label herself. She's more attracted to women and non-binary people. And and like I think she she likes to use gay as an umbrella term, which is another thing that I feel like I've been seeing younger people. Do. Well, I guess it's also like back in the like Stonewall era, they were used gay as an umbrella term. But um, I, I always felt like I didn't really like using the term gay for myself because I felt like it was erasing other like bisexuality and like like I'm thinking of of for instance like Orange is the New Black how she is in a relationship with a man and she's straight and then she's in a relationship with a woman and she's gay and no one says bisexual at any point yeah and and if they had used that opportunity to use the word bisexual they could have educated people and taught people about another identity that exists and uh, I feel like in a lot of ways like that's part of the reason why it took so long for me to even learn that this was an option was just because people don't don't talk about bisexuality and don't use the word bisexual. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So my my younger sister, she so she's four years younger than me. So she's she's very much Gen Z. Um, but she she likes to use gay as an umbrella term, uh, whereas I feel more comfortable with queer. Yeah. But she she did initially come out as bi, but I think she's sort of backed away from labels a little bit since then. Cool. I, mean, I see a lot of that too, of like people not really wanting labels either. Be- but I think it, it it speaks to sort of the inherent fluidity of a lot of this stuff. And it makes sense to me that people don't want like a fixed label, but that's why I try to tell them that the label bisexuality includes all of that fluidity. So like it can be a stable label even <laughs> when things are fluid, but Still, to each, to each his, her, or their own, and whatever label identifies you best and you feel comfortable with, great. Your experience with the group at your college, I feel like I had that experience with by request of like, I wasn't quite ready for it. I was going to sit at the back and not say much, but then like, I got there and it's a circle and like, I, I wanted to speak and I just jumped in. 
what so what like I guess what was it like the rest of college did did yeah. you come out there and then how did you get to buy request after that yeah um so there there is more to the story so there's more um, okay sorry <laughs> keep continue yeah so um so for the for a while in college I was I was like questioning and actively sort of trying to explore my sexuality and then there was a while um in in my very last semester of college where I was just sort of not focused on it. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I'm not really queer. Maybe this was just a phase. (laughs) I don't know. But then I always sort of felt like straight didn't exactly encompass the entirety of my identity. And uh, I I always sort of felt a little bit uncomfortable with trying to identify myself that way. And so it was, there was a a while where I was, I was sort of like, I'm bi maybe, but I don't know. (laughs) And I just like didn't talk about it. And it was, um, like I came out to my parents, I think it was mm, six months after I finished college, maybe. And, and like, it was in that period of time where I was sort of like, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> and and I guess it was also just like, because I wasn't in college and because I was, I was spending most of my time with my family and like meeting new people because I was getting out of college and trying to make friends in the real world. I, I just like, didn't have a queer community around me as much. And, and so I just like felt very disconnected from it. Mm-hmm. And then so I went to Pride in 2019, and that was how I first heard out, of, found out about Buy Request was because someone was handing out flyers for it. Mm, and cool. but it took me a few months to actually get up the courage to go, which I feel like a lot of people have all and like I think you might have said that you yeah. you like took a few tries before you could actually go in the building. Like, I walked right past it at least <laughs> once. Yeah. Yep. I know that I was like sitting on my desk for, for like a few months before I could get myself to to actually go. And like the fact that it was in an LGBT center, I was just like run into the, yeah. <laughs> like, like hide and, and run and run and close the door. Yep. Um, and then like, once I was inside, I was feeling like I was an imposter still. Like I was like, I'm not, I'm not a real queer. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a fake. <laughs> so it was like both, both ways were not great. Um, both being outside of the queer center and inside. But then I think the first meeting that I went to was actually the same week as your first podcast episode. (laughs) Yeah, because it was like September 2019. It was like Bi Visibility Day or something. Yeah, it just happened to coincide with with Bi Visibility Week. That was my first time going to Bi Request. Cool. (laughs) Which was just a happy coincidence. And and, um, Alex was there. I don't think I met you until like a month or so later. But mm-hmm. Alex was there and Alex made an announcement about the podcast. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I'll check it out. <laughs> Perfect timing. And now it's yeah. full circle. Okay. And then I feel like I like being part of by request and um and just like having a lot of friends who identify as queer. And also I feel like taking care of my mental health and like therapy have been helpful in in like figuring out my sexuality and feeling more confident in who I am. And like, I think especially with by request, like when I, the first time I came in, I felt like there was a very specific box that I had to fit into in order to identify as queer, which I think that was, that was a topic in, of one of the, the by request meetings that we were talking about. I seem to remember we were talking about by boxes. <laughs> sounds like, sounds like a by request topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I felt like there were, there was some some specific stereotypes that I had to fit into and I felt like I didn't necessarily meet all of the requirements but then being at by request was like I think I think being in person at by request was also just like way more extreme of this than than we've had on zoom um that it's just been like 
in person people from all walks of life, um, different ages, different races, different abilities, different genders, um, different religions, just like every kind of diversity you can possibly think of. And like, it, it's amazing how that, that managed to, to be a thing. Yeah. But I, I walked in and I was just like, well, no one here is the same. And so I'm allowed to be here no matter who I am and no matter how I present or, or, like what what's going on inside of me or 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 anything. Yeah. <laughs> and and so like that that really helped me start to feel more valid in my identity and and I guess it was also like having more sort of flirtations with women that that also sort of like solidified for myself like okay, yes. I like I know I've had very strong romantic feelings for for guys before, um but it was like women I was like I don't know, maybe I'm just sexually attracted to them, maybe I like and and then there was also that feeling of like am I just like a bad bisexual stereotype of like I want to date men and just sleep with women and it's like not real. <laughs> uh-huh. Has that like so y- you were talking about your attractions may be different based on gender. So like that makes sense. It's basically how I felt at the beginning in reverse. Has that like shifted for you over time? Like since, since you were first there, the, how you feel about different genders? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it still is, is somewhat, I don't know. I don't know how to describe how it's different, but I still, I still think that my, my attractions are different and they just like, they feel different physically in my body. Oh, (laughs) Um, interesting. But it, I think it has also like I've I've opened up more to the possibility of being in a romantic relationship with a woman um, or a non-binary femme person, and in a way that I was not before. And I think also just like being part of queer spaces, going to queer bars, being part of queer groups on social media, all of those things have have helped me sort of explore and and be able to like imagine myself in a relationship with a woman. There also to some degree, I think I probably was romantically attracted to women and didn't and sort of didn't accept it in myself or like didn't didn't let myself like believe that that it was true. Like I think maybe there was some internalized homophobia or biphobia, which I think also is common for a lot of a lot of queer people is that you just like look back over your your childhood and your like teenager years and you're like, oh. I was so queer. How did I not notice? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like there was in high school, there was this girl who I was really close friend with. She was an exchange student from Spain. And I definitely like looking back on it, I definitely had a crush on her. I was, I was like obsessed with her. And, um, and I, (laughs) I, I literally like followed her to Spain. (laughs) Wow. I went to Spain the next summer so that I could visit with her. <laughs> and then I remember saying something like, I wish you were a boy so I could date you. Wow. <laughs> and I just like didn't didn't realize that that was how queer that was. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I know it's like it's like we I also got so close to realizing it at times in my childhood, but there was just like a big wall up there and I never actually saw it. And then looking back, you see how close you got to, to something that was explicitly queer. It's like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess one, one other thing is just that I feel like the, it seems like some people sort of come at it from like uh, Alex comes from a place of identifying as gay and then finding out that he, he was attracted to more than just men. Um, and whereas you come from the other side of identifying as straight for a long time and then 
figuring out your attraction to same gender. I, I think I'm more on the the like straight, started out a straight side. And like, mm-hmm. I definitely throughout like middle school and high school and college, um, like I think I this also sort of like intersects with like mental health struggles in a lot of ways as well. And, and feeling like I was trying to prove something with myself and like I constantly feeling anxious and all of the like, crushes and and like I didn't really have relationships in college but if I had I probably would have felt very anxious in those also um uh-huh. and just feeling like I like I had to prove something and that like I had to prove that I was like really attracted to men and I had to prove that like I was I was straight enough and mm-hmm. <laughs> and like that that this was real and the other thing feelings that I was having were not real and so I I think I sort of like went to an extreme and like throughout high school and college I was like very boy crazy <laughs> But then uh-huh. I think when I started coming out as queer, I felt like, oh, no, well, like, people know me as, like, really boy crazy. How could I be attracted to women if people think that I'm bad? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Interesting. I, I definitely identify with that feeling of, like, which of these feelings are real? And w- what if I'm, like, deluding myself? And what if the things I feel are not real or whatever? And it's, like, can be hard to figure out. But actually, I want to, I mean, it's interesting to connect that to mental health because, of course, it is. But I don't think I realized that at the time that like that's kind of self-doubt is a mental health issue and is related to my anxiety, which I'm working on now with a therapist. And like my mental health and my by coming out as bisexual were very much connected. Like it was the same sort of moment when I shifted things in a big way on both fronts. Do you want to talk a little more about your mental health journey, like how you got into therapy or realized you should be and and how that intersects with your bi-identity and like the disability you brought up and all that? Yeah. So I've really struggled with anxiety since since I was like 11 years old, but like both regular anxiety and social anxiety. And so like when I was when I was a really young child, when I was younger than 10, I was very outgoing. I would I would like make friends wherever I went. I would like my, my mom would say every time we went to, she took me to the playground, I would make a new friend. And then all of a sudden when I was in middle school, I, I just became really quiet and, and I was really afraid to just like speak and, and interact with people. And, and people started saying that I was shy, which I, I felt like it didn't exactly. Um, I felt like that wasn't exactly right because it felt like I wanted, I, I like, I felt like I needed to, to interact with people and I, I wanted to, and hmm. that that this anxiety was sort of preventing me. I guess that's that's another another uh, binary of like extrovert introvert that I think that I I don't fit on one one or the other completely well. Uh-huh. But I think that yeah, like growing up, like I was very extroverted, and then all of a sudden people started like labeling me as an introvert, and I was I was sort of like, well, no, not really. <laughs> but I think for a long time I was sort of just like, okay, well, this is just how I am. Like I'm shy now, and it's weird because I used to not be shy, and I used to really love talking to people and meeting new people, and now I just don't. And it was it was like really not until like college that I started addressing it really. Well, also in college, I I also experienced depression for for like the fir- one of the first times, and like. I, so I was never like officially diagnosed with depression, but like the way that my therapist has, and I've talked about it is that they're sort of like depressive episodes and, and that I, like, I went through periods of, of like at least six months where I was just like, had low energy and 
everything was just like very, like it was difficult for me to like get up in the morning and do my homework and go to class. And, um, and, and like, I just felt like sad and, and, and just depressed. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had two of those episodes during college and they were both actually around, basically I, I, I had like been trying to, to date someone and that it didn't, it didn't go well. Um, like both, both of the, the episodes were like around romantic rejection. And I think that it had a lot to do with feeling like, like wanting to be in a relationship with these people. And especially because they were men feeling like this was a big part of my identity and that like, I was never going to like be a good straight woman <laughs> or something. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was like, it wasn't just about like this one rejection. It was like a whole, like, like identity shaking and life changing experience. So I had, I had some therapists on campus and my, like the, the mental health system on, on my college campus was like not great because they, they limited how many sessions of, of therapy you could get per, I think it was per semester. So I actually like had, I was seeing a therapist for a while and then we had a session and she was like, oh, this is our last session. And then I had like one of my really huge rejections and I was like, I needed a therapist and I lost my therapist right then. And, and, and they, they gave me a referral to someone else, but then, but it was, it was like, I just did not have the mental energy to figure out like, like the stuff with insurance and like figuring out a scheduling a time to, to meet. And, and, and so I just sort of like let that fall to the side and didn't, didn't really pursue it. And then, so, but then eventually I, I came home for the summer and actually now that I think about it, this was the same summer that I, that I started questioning my sexuality, <laughs> um, that I, of course. I found my, my current therapist here in Brooklyn. And so like when I was back at college, I was seeing her through, well, it was back then it was Skype. <laughs> yeah. And then when I was, when I was home, it was in person and she, I think she was like very good because she, she's very focused on, on like mindfulness and sort of like listening to yourself and like listening to like what like what the different parts of you are like trying to say and like why they're showing up in certain ways Mm -hmm. at certain times Mm -hmm. and and like I found that very helpful and yeah I mean she's still my therapist now and I think also like another thing that really helped with my mental health was um which I don't know if it was if it was actually this or if it's like a placebo effect (laughs) but like medication like I'm I'm on SSRIs now Mm -hmm. and since I started taking that, like I've noticed that my norm, my, so like I was saying, I have like generalized anxiety and then also social anxiety. And that's like really, really helped with the generalized anxiety. And like, it's basically, I mean, it's not all gone, obviously, like everyone experiences anxiety now and then. Um, but it, it was, it was like, I would, I noticed that like right before I started this medication, I did, I had a job interview and I was nervous about it for a whole week before the interview. And then a few months into taking the medication, I had another job interview and I was only nervous the day before. And so it was like, it completely changed the way that my brain yeah. was thinking about these like new and scary experiences. And it was, it was like, it, it used to be that, that things would just like completely overtake my brain. And now I can have a little distance between it. Cool. That's awesome. I'm glad. I'm glad that's helping. And it's awesome that you're like running for office and open about talking about this stuff because it really is like so common, so normal. Like we should talk about these things and what strategies we use and medications. And so that's very cool. And also, I I mean, I identify with 
a lot of that, <laughs> not all of it, but like <laughs> most of it. It's in particular, just to go back a second, I was also told, kind of told I was shy as a kid. Mm. And I, and I like looking back, it's like, I, I don't actually think I'm shy. I think there was something else going on and maybe it was anxiety about how I presented myself or something. But like, I do remember being told I was shy and like internalizing that and thinking, oh, well, I guess I must be shy and that's sort of who I am. And it was like a part of my identity for a long time. And then I don't exactly know when, when I shed that certainly at some point before this podcast, where I talk about all the (laughs) sex I have and stuff to thousands of strangers. Um, I don't think you could call me shy anymore, but it is, I don't know. It's, it, that's just interesting that there's that parallel, how like we fit into the boxes that other people see us in. And the same with introvert extrovert, like every time I take one of those tests, I'm like 48% extrovert, 52% introvert. I'm like somewhere right on that margin. So I, maybe that's a bisexual thing. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, I think also one other thing that I, I meant to say was that um, I think the social anxiety, it also relates to my bisexuality in that my social anxiety tends to be like, I'll, I'll be watching myself, like trying to trying to see myself through another person's eyes and like figure out what are they thinking about me and how am I being perceived by them. Mm-hmm. And, and I think part of it was like feeling like I had to portray myself as straight and, and feeling like I, I don't like, I, I guess also like feeling like I wasn't straight and feeling like nobody was going to just assume that I wasn't straight. And, and so like, I, I think a lot of like, I, I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying this the most clearly, but <laughs> like, no, I, I totally get what you're talking about. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Cause it's like, you, f- you have to fit that or we, at least I thought I had to fit that straight box for so long. You get, you get used to thinking about how another person sees you constantly. I I, I identify with that very much. You're running for something. And so uh, let's talk about that. And let's talk about some politics. Yeah. (laughs) Tell us what you're running for. It's district leader in Brooklyn. What does that mean? What is it? Why are you running for it? And uh, what do you hope to do if you are elected? Yeah. So... District leader is this position that no one has heard about, and it's um, it's pretty unique to New York City. I think they have they have something similar in upstate New York, but I don't think they call them district leaders. But it's essentially a leadership position within the local Democratic Party. So the the Brooklyn Democratic Party is essentially like its own governing body, separate from from like the government. Um, and, and so it has its own like leadership and its own general members. So the ground floor is called what is the, the county committee. And, um, so that's, that's essentially just like rank and file members who they, so in order to be on county committee, you have to collect like a handful of signatures and from your neighbors and you represent like a tiny, like three block district, and then what I'm running for district leader is like a step above that. And so I'm part of the executive, com- or if I win, I will be part of the executive committee of the county committee. And I will have a say over uh, like what the party is using its resources for and who the party boss is, um, because there's, I think it's called like the, the executive, ah, I forget the, I forget the exact wording, but, um, but the, the, like the leader of the executive committee. Um, cool. And I, I get a vote on that. 
And um, essentially, the reason that I'm running is that the party right now is not doing a very good job of engaging ordinary people, which I'm, I'm sure you can agree. Um, and again, like I think most people don't really know about these like very specific details about party politics, but essentially the party meetings are are like kind of completely dysfunctional. And the so like there's this system called proxy voting uh-huh. um, where essentially if you're not able to attend a meeting, you can sign your vote over to someone else. And the what but what the party boss does with with that is that she she tries to make it as hard as to attend meetings as possible. And and she tries to make sure that that the people who are holding county committee seats are are not going to be actively participating, are not going to show up to meetings so that then she can just get all of their votes through proxies because there's no limit to the amount of proxies that someone can hold. And so then you end up with meetings where the party boss has more proxy votes than there are actual people voting at the meeting. Wow. And, and so she just controls everything. And I guess taking a step back, people petition to be on county committee. And then if there are vacancies, then the district leaders get to a point people to those seats. And a lot of the times they'll just appoint people who like don't even know that they're on county committee or like don't even know what it is. And so then so then they're just using their names and then and then the people are like, oh, yeah, I'll just give you my vote. Like, I don't know what this is. Interesting. So so I'm working with this group called they have like a few different organizations under under their umbrella at this point. But um, the the original organization is New Kings Democrats. And they have this uh, goal of reforming the Brooklyn Democratic Party and making it a real democracy and making it inclusive and and getting people to, to run for county committee and to run for district leader. And, and so they, they also started this uh, this other this campaign called Rep Your Block, which runs people for county committee. And anyone who's who's listening, who who lives in Brooklyn should sign up and it's not, it's not very hard. You just need to collect a few signatures from your neighbors and then attend up to two meetings a year. And it essentially makes sure that, that there are, there are active people who are participating in our party and making, making sure their voices are heard and making sure they're, that our, our neighbors have someone in the party who's actually listening to them. But, but anyway, so that was, that was a tangent, cool. but um <laughs> <laughs> and we'll put all the links and stuff that are mentioned in the show notes. So check that out. Just to go back for a second, I know you've worked on other campaigns and you have some experience in politics. Can you briefly tell us about that too? Yeah. And how like is that and how you got involved? Yeah. So I so I've worked on on a few different campaigns as uh, a field organizer. Um, and then most recently last year, I was I was working on a city council race as a field director. And so for, for people who don't know, field organizing is basically interacting with voters and doing direct voter contact. And so that usually on a campaign that involves knocking on doors and making calls to voters and sending texts. And also more recently, there there have been different like new methods developed such as like relational organizing which is like reaching out to your own network of friends and family and making sure that they know about elections coming up and um and making sure that they're they're engaged in our voting so i've i've been a field organizer i've helped to recruit volunteers and and train volunteers to knock on doors and talk to voters um and then i've also been a field director for a city council race in queens last year 
where I I got to also deal with the the like the voter data and and be like what is the list of voters that we should be talking to and like what areas do we want to be prioritizing and 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 sort of like making an overall field plan and really the way that I got involved in politics originally was well I've always sort of been interested in politics like growing up my my dad has always been very strongly opinionated about politics and so I I just grew up hearing a lot about politics as as a kid and when I was like eight years old, my dad took me to this protest against the Iraq war. And so there's a picture of me like as a little eight-year-old in a protest. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's it's always been something that I was just like sort of casually interested in. And then I'd say I really started getting more involved right around the 2016 election, just like a lot of other people. <laughs> um, and I like it happened to be right when I was I was like towards the end of my time in college and I was I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my career and with my life and and politics was sort of one 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 option that I had in there and then the election happened and I was like okay this is this is what I'm doing now <laughs> like we we need more people in politics yes yes and we need more queer and bi people in politics so okay we'll get to that in a second but so let's let's hear about your politics and I have a feeling knowing that they're <laughs> fairly progressive Jewish queer politics that you may be in good company on this podcast with many of our previous guests, but like, what are your kind of thoughts? Clearly you're a Democrat running as a Democrat. What are your current thoughts on like the democratic party and like this kind of tension between uniting, we need to unite and use our collective power versus like holding the party accountable when they are not delivering on promises and like where where do you think we kind of need to go and how do we get there? So I think that, well, that was, that was like five questions at once. That's, that's my style. And, and how do we, and how do we get there is, I mean, that's almost unanswerable, but you can do your best. Yeah. So in terms of my politics, I would say that I, I use the terms like progressive, democratic, socialist, uh, leftist, all, all sort of interchangeably. Um, I think probably I most often say progressive just because it seems like the most like big umbrella term. Mm-hmm. But but I also I also identify as a democratic socialist. And I would say that that like I I prioritize making sure that we have a world and and like I'm, I'm focused on on local New York City politics. So so our city in particular um, is is like a livable place for everyone so that everyone has the, the things that they need to, to survive and thrive. And so that's housing, healthcare, living wage, unions. And um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm just like <laughs> the, your typical podcast guest in terms of my <laughs> <laughs> political <Yeah>. views. <laughs> um, and, and then obviously like equality and, and like, like racial equality, gender equality, LGBT rights, of course. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, um, so I guess sort of to to like pivot to your other questions, um, uh-huh. I I also feel like the party should be a democracy, and I think that right now it's not. Right now it's very much controlled by people who like either either they're like from a, a family who's had power for a while, or they they're wealthy, or they have just like been been in office for a long time. There are a lot of there's a lot of incumbency within our party and not a lot of fresh voices. Hmm. And there's also the aspect that the party tries to cultivate this incumbency on purpose. 
and and tries to prevent new people like we saw with with like AOC's election how she she beat someone who who had been in Congress for a really long time and he was actually he was also a district leader as well as being a Congress member hmm. and he, I believe he was the he was also the party boss in in Queens of the Queens Democratic Party and so he had a lot of power within the local Democratic Party and it it was a it was incredible that AOC managed to win because she was going up against this huge powerful incumbent and he he had the name recognition he had the money he had all of the institutional support but then she she ended up winning because she it, it's like the field organizing that i was talking about she managed to get enough grassroots supporters and and have people talking to voters and and getting out the word about her election and as as far as i'm aware that's that's basically how she managed to do it and so i think that hmm. that's essentially where the the democratic party should be going that we should be focusing on the on democracy and on making sure that everyone has a fair say in the party no matter how wealthy they are no matter how much privilege they have and and right now like going back to to like the the whole mess with democratic party meetings that i was talking about like with proxy voting like that that inhibits democracy if if you have one person who has 500 votes and everyone else has one vote that's not that's not democracy that's that's not mm-hmm. one person one vote yeah. <laughs> literally yeah and yeah so i what i want to do is i want to i want to work to make sure that more people are actively participating in the party and that we're also using party resources to be organizing rather than just sort of relying on incumbency. I think that we should be going out and talking to voters even when there aren't elections going on um and and like I think that that's also like why we the, the Democratic Party has been just like losing voters and, and having a lot of voters who are just apathetic because we we just like really aren't putting in the work and we, we don't have the infrastructure in place to be organizing the way that we should be organizing. Like, for instance, um, last year there were there were some ballot referendum or not referendums, ballot measures um, that would have enacted certain voting rights reforms and the Democratic Party didn't put any resources into getting them passed, but the Republican Party did. And this is New York State, by the way. And the Republican Party is in the minority in New York State, but they managed to prevent them from passing because the Democrats didn't put any resources into supporting them. And then it's like the same the same situation with like the census where we we didn't put any resources into organizing and then we lost a congressional seat because we didn't count like 90 people. If we had counted 90 more people, we wouldn't have lost a seat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does seem like the Democratic Party is like gaining sort of popular support, but is not translating that into like actual ground game. And Republicans are so organized in in terms of like those kinds of things yeah um and it's also like i mean we hear a lot about this kind of anti-democratic stuff on a national level but i i don't always really think about it at the local level and like what you described sounds absolutely insane and ridiculous and like how can that be happening and well actually there was there was even an article that came out recently that that found that they had been putting dead people up as county committee members. <laughs> I was going to actually read a tweet you yeah. had. I just saw that. So there was an article, <laughs> there was an article that the headline said at least 20 people were listed as Brooklyn Democratic primary candidates without their knowledge. 
And then you tweeted, when I'm district leader, I won't need to put anyone up for a position without their consent because I'll actually do the work and bring in and activate new folks in the party, especially from queer and youth communities. So can you talk a little about that, like your vision for that and why it's important and how you could do that? Yeah. So, okay. So one other thing that this isn't necessarily a direct answer to your question, but sure, that's fine. <laughs> the, um, the questions are kind of like loose suggestions, really. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, it's, it's related to, to queer and, and the Brooklyn Democratic Party, okay. um, the queer community. Um, so there's, there's a lot of gender seats in, in the Brooklyn Democratic Party and in the, like essentially in, in the election law that governs how, how parties uh, exist that say that you, if you have like, essentially like I'm running for the, the female district leader seat. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> there. So this dates back to like the suffragettes time, like Eleanor Roosevelt was, was a big proponent of, of this. And uh, they, they initially put these gendered seats in place so that women would have uh, seats at all because otherwise it would have just been men uh-huh. but like these days it it doesn't really make sense and like you often have more women who want to run than there are seats uh-huh. and and so then you end up like rejecting women because you're having 50 50 and then it's also like non- non-binary people right don't fit into either category and like my my predecessor who like was holding the seat and then decided not to run for re-election they they identify as non-binary and they they came out after being elected, they they ran for the female seat, and and I think that was like part of what helped them realize that they didn't really fit into this this category of woman necessarily, and and that they they wanted to change the way that they identified. Wow. And and yeah, and then the county committee seats were also used to be gendered as well, but they recently got rid of those labels. Um, so now they're they're just like county committee, not not gendered, but. There, there, there have been some lawsuits recently that have to do with um, trying to get rid of the the gendered seats, and um, there were people two years ago who got kicked off of the ballot because they hadn't specified a gender for their county committee seats they were running for, and and so then they sued the party, and the party was like, okay, we'll we'll um we'll work on a, a solution to this, and they they ended up getting rid of the the gendered seats, and so this time this cycle for the first time it's it's been like gender neutral um wow and and so i think that's like one way that like in terms of queer people being able to participate that's like a way that that not well not cis people but trans people and non-binary people have been systematically pushed out of the party politics and Another way to engage these communities that have traditionally been left behind, especially uh, youth communities and LGBT communities, are to come up with a, a progressive platform, which right now the Brooklyn Democratic Party doesn't have any platform. And if we if we essentially like had had a platform and we could say, this is what we believe in, we're fighting for housing and healthcare and student loan cancellation, I think that that would, that would give people a reason to be excited to vote and to get involved. And I think right now the party doesn't really stand for anything. And, and I think it discourages people and makes people feel like there isn't a difference between the parties and it doesn't matter if they vote or participate and that everything is just terrible <laughs> either way. So there is, we need to like actually go out and and be talking to these communities. And we also need to be working towards uh, 
things that will better their lives. And, and so like, like universal healthcare, that, that, that's a huge thing that would help the queer community and student debt cancellation that, that would help young people. And I think these are, these are things that um, the party needs to get behind and needs to be really, really fighting for. And, and right now, like you see uh, Nancy Pelosi supporting people like Henry Cuellar, who's a representative in Texas, who's, who's up for re-election actually the, the day after this podcast episode is coming out and he's running uh, against a progressive woman of color. And he's, he's basically, he's the, the last anti-choice Democrat in the house who's left and, and Nancy Pelosi is supporting him just because he's the incumbent. And, and there's this wonderful woman uh, named Jessica Cisneros who's, who's running against him. And if you're, if you're listening to this in that district in Texas, you should, you should support her or, yeah. Actually, I might have gotten the dates mixed up. I so you might have to edit that, but <laughs> I, I think say. I might be mixing it up with Pennsylvania. So let's say, let's say May twenty fourth. Okay, so I was a week off. So you got a, you guys got a week. If you're listening to this on time, you got a week to get out the vote in Texas. Yeah, but that's that's I think an example of how like the party is supposedly we're we're supposedly the pro choice party, and yet we're supporting people who are against abortion and we're we're not we're not really fighting for for what the majority believes which is the majority believes that there should be access to help to to abortion and and that it's a it's a right and and i think that the fact that we 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 have this right that's in danger that the majority of this country supports i think that also just shows how little organizing we've been doing as a party that like we can't even get our basic majority to to protect basic human rights. Yeah. <laughs> and like I I think that that goes all the way back down to the grassroots of the the local democratic parties and like making sure that local democratic parties are working actively towards organizing and making sure that people are engaged and and know what's going on. Like I feel like growing up in New York, I always sort of just assumed like, oh, well like everyone's a Democrat here. And I don't really like, like, we don't really need to worry about who, who our elected officials are because they're all Democrats and they're all going to be good. <laughs> and I think that it was really, it wasn't until maybe like 2016, 2018 that I, I started to see that, oh no, there, there are like differences between different Democrats and that there are, there are Democrats who are sort of just sitting on their incumbency and sitting on their, their big money and, and not, not really, representing the people that they're supposedly elected to represent. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And well, and they, this abortion issue and Jessica Cisneros is like a pretty good example of this, where it's like at this moment, right after we've heard this draft decision from the Supreme court that they're going to strike down Roe versus Wade. And then the Democrats, like if the message from top Democrats is send us more Democrats and then we can pass these laws, no, not if you're endorsing someone who won't support this law. So then like the, if these basic fundamental rights and things that are important to our communities are going to be ignored, then it isn't just like support Democrats blindly or like maybe it's get involved in primary season and, and at earlier levels to make sure we have Democrats who actually listen to their constituents. Yeah. And I think, so there's also a couple of other examples I can think of on the, the state level here in New York. Um, there's, there's 
uh, for instance, there's a bill called the New York Health Act, um, which would essentially be like Medicare for all, but for New York State, it would provide single payer universal health care. And currently, there is, I mean, there's a majority of New Yorkers support it. And also a majority of state senators and state assembly members are co-endorsers of the bill. And if it were brought for a vote, it would pass. But the leadership of of the different houses of the state legislature is just like they're they're not bringing it up for a vote and it's not moving forward even though it's like healthcare is a basic human right and and we should we should be getting a vote on these this bill yeah. and like there there are a few a few different uh things bills like that that are in the state legislature that like the the governor the speaker of the assembly and the uh senate majority leader are not prioritizing enough and not not really seeing the urgency of of these bills the way that they should be. How do you think your queerness affects your candidacy, outlook, politics, like what you might do in office and and why is it in, I'm going to throw five questions. Why why do you think it is important to elect queer people? It, it, or do you think that's important or not? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's important. I so honestly, I think that being bi is like one one reason that I that I like said yes to running for this is because I I feel like our our community is not talked about and not prioritized and like that was that was a reason that I wanted to run. It was because like growing up here even in New York City, like I I didn't know about bisexuality. So like I think having more more people in power, more people who have have their names out there and and have a platform being vocal about about their identities and about their queerness. I think that that really will matter to the generations coming after us and and people who are who are kids now who are maybe just like thinking about their sexualities or genders. Yep. And I think also in terms of like the way that I've been campaigning, I've I've also been very clear and and I've I've been vocal about the fact that I'm queer and and bisexual and I've been I've been making sure to say that um in like for instance there there have been some different endorsements that I that I've applied for with different local democratic clubs and I've in my speeches I made sure to to mention that I was bisexual and say how important it I think it is for especially for bi women to to get elected because bi women have higher rates of, of mental illness and homelessness and sexual assault and that we're we're really ignored and 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 we we deserve to be heard more than we are. And like after one of those meetings, someone came up to me and said that they actually identify as bi, but they like don't really talk about it. And they were so grateful that I had brought it up and that it had like made them sort of feel teary and <laughs> and and like oh. and I was just like, oh wow, like I'm already like this is already a good thing. It's already helping people. And <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, the visibility and by rep alone is is like worth it. But then I think it makes total sense. Like by people are sort of at the forefront of many of these struggles with mental health, with housing, with healthcare, And so to have someone from that community, like, yeah, especially having been to by request, being a community organizer, like you've seen all this stuff firsthand. Yeah. I also, so this is unrelated to what we were just talking about, but I just sure. thought of another thing that I wanted to talk about, which is, um, I, I remember that the episode where you were talking to Sherry Eisner, 
about about being Jewish. I I really liked that episode also, and I felt like there were there there were a lot of connections between being Jewish and being bisexual, and sort of having yeah. having it be like this invisible thing or this this thing is sort of like in in a spectrum and like like we're we're like white but not completely white, but like <laughs> mm-hmm. like yeah, it's interesting, and like I think also like feeling like it's like something that you have to hide and, and like growing up, like I, I remember, I think, I think the, the way that I most look Jewish is like with my hair, like I have curly hair and I remember growing up and wanting to have like straight blonde hair uh-huh. <laughs> and, and wanting to be whiter mm-hmm. and, and like wanting to conform. But then I think that that like is also like you lose part of your culture. Like you, you were talking about um, when you, when you conform more to whiteness and I think it's also like similar with with being bi that like if you conform more to straightness, you and and don't like acknowledge your your identity or like talk about it, that it you you lose some of your queer community. Um, yeah, yeah. There's there's so many parallels between Judaism and queerness, and it just it just seems like so so many people I know in the Jewish community are are exploring queerness uh, for yeah. some reason. <laughs> Um, do you think your uh, and I mean, do you think your Judaism informs your politics or your candidacy too? Like, and do you see a need for more Jewish representation, or or is there a lot of that in Brooklyn already? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that there's a need for for more progressive Jewish representation. Uh, um, I think that you you see people who are like the the Orthodox Jewish community has has some some elected officials from their community. And then there are, I think that there are, there are more than enough like pro Israel elected officials. Um, Seems like, seems like. Yeah. I mean, so there's another organization that I'm part of called Jews for racial and economic justice. I am also part of it. Ah, cool. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think they're great and they, they do a great job of uh, elevating leftist Jews and, um, and supporting candidates of color who aren't necessarily Jewish to show that our liberation is all connected and that we can't just focus on liberation for for Jews. We need to focus on liberation for everyone. And, yeah. and that like none of us is, is really free until all of us are free. Indeed. And I think I think also like so growing up, I didn't I wasn't like super religious, but uh, my family did celebrate Passover every year. And I think that like growing up with Passover and like having having this part of our our um, culture being about liberation and freedom and like the way that my family celebrated Passover, we would always talk about like like ways that the world isn't free today and and like mm-hmm. draw parallels between the Jewish people being slaves in 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 Egypt and and people not having freedom today. Yep. And so like I think that also definitely influenced my my politics from a young age and. And also just like the way that I think like my parents raised me, like I think that having grown up in a, in a household where one of my parents is Jewish, I think that my family was a lot more open about like sexuality and and um, and also like difference in general and like was more accepting, I think, because of that background, at least in part. Interesting. That's interesting and kind of makes sense to me. But it also like I've seen it both ways where like for some people, their Judaism kind of makes them more open to differences. And for some people, it's like they had to fit in and conform to survive. And then they pass that on this, like that, that 
the feeling that you need to do that to survive. And so, you know, depending on the what kinds of trauma specific people have been through, like it, it can go both ways, but it's definitely connected either way. Yeah. Okay, but can we do some rapid fire logistics? Uh, when sure. when is your election? What's oh, the date? So this is this is actually not going to be rapid fire. Okay. <laughs> um, because I as there there is always with with like New York City politics, it's complicated. Okay. Um, <laughs> so originally the primary was supposed to be June twenty eighth, but there there are some lawsuits that are trying to throw out the the maps that were drawn because there was. The redistricting happened, uh, and they they redrew, redrew the all of the legislative and congressional maps. And so, like my my race depends on the state assembly maps. And um, right now, they've they've decided to throw out the congressional maps and the state senate maps, which don't directly affect my election. But uh-huh. there's another lawsuit that someone brought forward recently that would throw out the assembly maps as well. And so then they might end up pushing the primaries all back to August. <laughs> okay. Okay. And and my so. next question was going to be like, who can vote for you? What area of Brooklyn are you representing? But I guess you can't answer that yet either. Yeah. Well, the map didn't change very much from okay. uh, from the way it was last year to, to this year, two years ago, I guess was the last time there was an election. But it generally the neighborhoods are... Um, like the the northern and central part of Park Slope and Gowanus, Carroll Gardens, Borham Hill, Cobble Hill, downtown Brooklyn, Brooklyn Heights, and Dumbo. Um, oh, and also like the Navy Yard, but I don't think anyone really lives there. Um, <laughs> I don't know how much that's going to change, but that's that's what the map looks like right now. And how many district leaders are there for that area? So there are there are two two district leaders per per assembly district. Okay. So there's so my my friend Aaron is running for the the male seat, um, and okay. and we're we're running as a as a team, and then we each of us has actually two opponents. And okay. So there's there's one candidate who's like more tied to the party boss, and then the other opponent that I have is, um, she's. I would say she's not terrible, um, but I I think that I'm I'm a better candidate. <laughs> um, obviously, I think that or I wouldn't be running still. Um, but the so the other candidate like supports the same sort of things around reforming the party that I do. But she's not an organizer in her background, and she's she's a bit more uh, established and a bit more like she's she's connected to the local assembly member in this district. And but I'm like the the most leftist candidate and the the organizer candidate and the the young candidate <laughs> cool and the bisexual candidate yeah and, that, and then so is that is whenever it happens in either june or august or whatever is that the end or is there a general election also so not not for my election and it's okay. just in the primary because it's a it's a party position it's not okay. a public office um cool and so it's like we, we don't have Republicans voting for Democratic Party positions. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Well, everyone get out and vote either in late June or August, depending on the lawsuits. <laughs> uh, but whenever any primaries are in New York or everywhere, we should always vote in all of them for the reasons Lydia has described, the local 
primaries are often more important than the general, especially in probably a place like Brooklyn. Yeah, especially in New York City, where where it's really the all the Democrats win pretty much always. <laughs> yeah. And so you want to you want to make sure that you have a say in which Democrats are representing us. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add about about the election or about anything we uh, didn't get to cover that people should know? Um, I guess. Just that uh, if you if you're interested in getting more involved with my campaign, yeah, we're we're always looking for more volunteers and and also donations if you have any any money that you can send our way. But yeah, but if you're if you're interested in volunteering, especially, um, you should sign up for for updates on my website, um, which is uh, lydiagreenbk.com. Um, but I'll I guess I'll, you you'll put that in the notes. We'll put it also. in the notes too. Yep. Yeah, and, and if you want to follow me on social media, I'm at Lydia Green BK pretty much everywhere. Awesome. Cool. So follow your fellow bi activist Lydia Green on on social. Go to that website, check our show notes. Um, and yeah, hopefully we'll get some more bi and queer representation in our local government right now, and then more and more uh in bigger roles in government too. Hey, b- bonus clip. Do you want to talk about Kirsten Cinema? No, actually, I don't want to talk about Kirsten Cinema. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's like, like it's like we need by representation, and then we get it at the highest level, and it's is like pointless and sucks. And yeah, all of our by representation right now sucks. Like there's so there's like Kirsten Cinema <laughs> who is terrible and conservative, and and like I feel like she does not represent the average bisexual person. <laughs> um, no. And then, and then there's even like uh, Katie Hill, who was a representative in California, and she ended up stepping down and having some like there were some reve- revenge revenge porn. porn. I remember, um, yeah. And, yeah, but then there was also a, an accusation that she was like having having a relationship with a staffer, which is like not great. So, <laughs> not ideal and, representation. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then in in New York State. Um, We've had one one state legislature who was bisexual, and he also had a sexual harassment scandal. So not great. <laughs> cool. So fun. Well, elect Lydia for Brooklyn, and there will be no scandals, only lots of great progressive politics and community building and healthcare and stuff like that. Right? Yes. Cool. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for being here, Lydia. It was really nice to see you again and hear more about your story and uh, the campaign. So everyone go check it out. Yeah, nice to see you. (laughs) Two Bye Guys is edited and produced by me, Rob Cohen, and it was created by me and Alex Boyd. Our music is by Ross Mincer. Our logo art is by Caitlin Weinman, and we are supported by The Gotham, formerly IFP. Thanks for listening to Two Bye Guys.